Crumdog. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. I hear you're battling uh, the deadly shopaholic time of year. Just just off the Tempe Marketplace. <laughs> you in my car. I'm sorry about that. It was, it was interesting. Not hard to find parking. Found parking in like 10 seconds. But hard to get into in my car. Yes. But I was walking from one store to the other, and it probably, it was amazing. I, I realized, or I could visually see how inefficient it was to move cars, because they just take up so much space. I was standing with maybe 20 people on my side of the intersection and 20 people on the other waiting to cross, and a traffic coordination guy is, like, waving cars through, and I realized, like, two minutes, it was all these single-person vehicles, and then... In 30 seconds, we had 40 people across the same intersection just on their feet. It's crazy. Yeah, but they drove there probably. <laughs> so. Yeah. But it does look good that we're all pedestrians at some point, even when we take our car. So we should not ignore them. That was pretty cool. Um, I finished editing the recording from the APA. Very cool. Uh, we just need an intro. An intro. We need to come up with a really jazzy idea. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's been like, what, like a month or month and a half? Yeah, we probably shouldn't put too much pressure on ourselves. You're right. I was thinking uh, maybe we'll just do this over the phone. We'll just do, like, a quick intro. Quick intro. Like, hi. Yeah. Like, we're, like we're we're at, uh, what was the name of that? <laughs> Arizona Planning Conference, hosted by the Arizona Chapter of uh, American Planning Association. Out, out in the middle of the Fort McDowell Reservation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, where a bunch of, you know, urban planners come together talking about how can we make our communities more sustainable and more walkable? And it was like out in this isolated walk score of zero location. <laughs> you gotta walk there. <laughs> as long as you gotta ride there first. <laughs> You're right. I, yeah. But uh, it did make me think of when I was standing out there just thinking about, you know, pre automobile pre automobile society out in the desert. They were hurry Yeah. I drove up to Flagstaff last weekend and I was glancing off into the to the mountainous uh range to the west of I seventeen as you're making your way up there. And I was just thinking if I was on a Conestoga wagon and I was saw that up ahead, I'd be like, Hell I don't care if there's not any water here, this is fine. This is great. I'm just gonna stop this, right. This is a good spot. <laughs> we'll just stop right here. Uh, man. Uh, oh, the other week we went out, uh, to, took your wife out for a night on the town. Yes. We're downtown to Mesa. Her, convert wow. her to uh, being a fan of downtown Mesa, since she is probably one of the, the harshest critics I know. <laughs> well, we had margaritas at Republic Empanada. We did. We enjoyed them. Cider at Cider Core. And we enjoyed that. And then, but, Thai food uh, and nuns of porn. In, in between, yeah, we got some Thai food. And then we yeah. kept it off with some fun games. At, uh, most they, importantly. Most importantly. We, we, we really are the, the smartest group ever. Without a dang clue uh, to get us out of that thing. So that's, we, that's our claim to fame. We escaped the room. No hints. No hints. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I will say it was my fastest time ever. <laughs> yeah. One out of one. You're, you're, uh, you have a perfect score. Yep, that's right. It <laughs> <laughs> was a fun time. And uh, also, our Christmas tree burned down. Yeah, but thanks to uh, some quick action and I, I don't know how much money uh, we got a replacement. So, yay. 
So it's amazing how you can fix things with cash. Yeah. How about that for government work? And did you see that article on Strong Towns about uh, installing curbs? I saw that you posted it. It's on my uh, to-read list. How about you give me a, a synopsis? I didn't read it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I hope you read this stuff so I don't have to. <laughs> something about uh, predicting uh, the future with curbs. Right, because curbs are so expensive to move that you know that a town that has committed to a street size when they install the curbs. That's right, because asphalt is easy to come by, but laying formwork and concrete, and there's there's trouble there. Very, very expensive, which is why the curbs in downtown Mesa are not changing without another $20 million. You guys have any big plans for Christmas? Big plans. Grandma and Grandpa's going to do it a big. Got them a juicer because they have more citrus than they know how to use, and they're coming off of their citrus tree. <laughs> They're here in the valley? Yeah, they're here in Mesa. Like actually the county island. So they uh they recently bought this house and they've got grapefruit and tangelos and oranges and limes. Or no lemons. And so uh they've never had that much citrus before in their life. So I know that they struggled to make use of it and they were talking about a juicer, so I was eavesdropping and so I'm going to surprise them by getting them a juicer for Christmas. But before you give them that juicer, you got to get those lemons and grapefruits over to us. Okay. You got it. I'll get you some uh, right. fresh, freshly squeezed stuff. All right. Okay. So, we ready to... You have a very Merry Christmas. You do the same. And, and to all of our listeners who will probably listen to this in 2018 sometime, Merry Christmas to you guys. I'm, I'm insulted. <laughs> you, I'm going to have this up tonight. Awesome. Well, you can I have mean, this up before Christmas. That doesn't mean that our listeners listen to it as soon as it drops. So they will listen to it on Christmas Day. <laughs> yes, as you're uh, busy, busily opening up your Christmas presents, <laughs> here's a Christmas present from us. <laughs> a new episode. That you... Silver bells, silver bells. <laughs> well, nice. All the Christmas music, crooned by David. <laughs> Actually, before you drop it, just lace in, you know, a nice track of Silver Bells in the background the entire episode. That'll be great. That's, that's right. We'll do the, the creepy. You, maybe you and I can do the creepy uh, duet version of Baby It's Cold Outside. <laughs> Count me in anytime. <laughs> what is in this drink, indeed? <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, uh, for, thanks for all the hard work on the editing, and I hope that everybody enjoys uh, what happened at the session. Me too. From a light rail station in the middle of Main Street, it's Main Street Mesa. We are podcasters, and so can you. And whether you expected it or not, we're going to make you podcasters today. So for those of you who are sitting in the back, you'll help us out a lot if you come up and take some of these seats up to the front. Unless you don't want your voice recorded, which is possible. We didn't bring our we didn't bring waivers for you. Or if you don't want to hear us. Yeah. But we're going to be having a conversation for the second half um, of this, so it might be helpful if you're up front to be able to um, hear what we're saying. 
Um, my name is Jeff McVeigh. I'm the manager of downtown transformation for the city of Mesa. Um, and I'll be your session moderator. And later on in this session, I'm going to be also one of your co-hosts. Um, we're going to be recording at the end of this session the final episode in a podcast series that was created by Ryan and David over there um, about walkable cities, the book Walkable Cities by Jeff Speck as it relates to downtown Mesa. But before, before I hand over the mic to Ryan and David and really get to the heart of this, uh, this program, I wanted to kind of introduce you to um, downtown Mesa and kind of set the stage. I'm sure everybody here knows Mesa. Um, it's the largest suburb in the country that nobody knows outside of Arizona. Um, I've got some nice statistics up there, but really, you know, statistics don't really tell a whole lot about a place. Um, these are just basic demographics, and um, what we really want you to know um, is, is Mesa's history, where we're going, where we've been, where we're going. Mesa was incorporated in 1893 as one square mile. Um, from that point forward, for the next, say, 80 or 90 years, downtown Mesa served and acted as if it was the downtown for all the East Valley of Phoenix. So if you lived in Gilbert, Chandler, um, AJ, any of those places, Mesa was the downtown that you went to. Um, but just like the movie Cars, Mesa became Radiator Springs. Freeways were installed, you know, freeways were constructed. What used to be cross-country traffic that came right through our downtown, all the tourism and all the people that were associated with that, they diverted off onto the freeways, and Mesa's downtown began this slow and steady decline. And despite many efforts, I mean, these are all pictures of, you know, essentially the same place, many efforts on the part of the city to do street skate projects to really try to keep that vibrancy and the activity going. Um, we have a great downtown. Um, you come down there, it's one of our most authentic downtowns in the valley. We have building stock that is the youngest 1950s, oldest 1900s, early 1900s, a lot of 50 to 100 year old buildings. Um, so it's been preserved because things haven't been happening. <laughs> Which is a good thing. In hindsight, it's a great thing. But we're going someplace, right? So downtown base is on the, on the rise. We've had, we've had light rail now for just a little over two years. With the, install, with the construction of light rail, opening operations, ridership for the system went up almost a million people in one year, just by adding three miles through downtown Mesa. We had this transformational vision for what we want to have happen that was adopted by our council in 2012 in our central main plan. We have people like Ryan and David, activists, grassroots activists that, that are either forming nonprofit organizations or who are just thorns in our sides to make sure that they're advocating yeah, they are. Uh, <laughs> make sure that they're advocating for those things in downtown that the vision that, that I don't expect anybody to read um, really means so that, that we have people pushing us for this stuff. That was the most city thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> most city thing? <laughs> I've said way cityer. <laughs> <laughs> and I've worked, you know, I've worked at the city of Mason now for 12 years. Seven of those years I was in the planning department. And, um, and it wasn't until I moved to my new job where, where I have a different, you know, my, my paradigm has shifted. I have a different vision of things. And I was reading, you know, I, uh, was, I think it was a little over a year ago. I read this book, and I'm reading this book, and I'm saying to myself, this book is saying everything that the Central Maine Plan says, only it's saying it in a way that I think everybody else could understand besides us planners. So I could take this and hand it to a layperson, to a council member, to anybody, and they could read this, and they would understand what, what the points that he's trying to make. So I did what any normal person would do. I spent my own money. I went out and bought 10 copies of the book. I handed a copy to the mayor. I handed a copy to the city manager. I had a copy to the development services director. 
transportation engineer, which was actually a very risky part because there's a section in here that's called first kill the traffic engineer. Um, so that was kind of risky on my part, but I did it anyway. And it's all because this book, it has real facts, you know? And, and facts are kind of an important thing today in today's age. And, and if you use facts in your arguments, it's amazing where you can get. Uh, so this, it's almost as if uh, it's a textbook that you can hand to somebody and help them understand what we all in this room know, how important walkability is to our communities. This book takes it and then puts it in a different argument about how really important walkability is to the success of the city itself. It is called Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. So, that was my, oh, I see, and I missed, I'm already screwed up. That was my light bulb moment when I was reading that book. And then there's another light bulb moment. Yeah, I brought the real book. <laughs> so now, I'm going to start introducing uh, and bringing in our, our creators of the Main Street Mesa podcast. David Crummy is the host of the Main Street Mesa podcast, a passion project to increase engagement in community development, quality planning practices, and engagement in West Mesa. For love and money, he works for Newtown Community Development Corporation as their real estate development manager, developing new approaches to affordable homeownership, community reinvestment, and development. Previously, he's worked for nonprofits in affordable housing, housing development, small business support, and education management. He also is involved with community gardening, neighborhood advocacy, K through eight education, and early childhood education. So, David, what was your LED ball moment? <laughs> so, has anyone heard of the podcast Boars, Gore, and Swords? Good. It's terrible. Uh, it's completely inappropriate. It's filled with words that we can't say at uh, official events. Um, and basically, has anyone heard of the TV show Game of Thrones? Yeah. Uh, it's also a book before that. Um, and so I heard about this podcast, and they're like, oh, it's a book club on a podcast. And I'm like, I'm going to read this book, and then I'm gonna, not going to watch the TV show. So I read the book, and then I heard about this podcast. And so I started listening to the podcast as I was reading the book, and I was like, this is kind of funny. It's two comedians out of San Francisco basically making fun of the TV show, and later they decided to do a book club. And I was like... That's a great organizing principle for a way to do something. You talk about it. Because how many here have ever been in a book club? How many here has actually finished a book in a book club? <laughs> so our thought was like, well, maybe if we didn't have to show up to that meeting that month and you could instead just listen to it, you might actually do it. Thank you, David. Um, next, we have Brian Wozniak. You already switched it for me. Not full bearded. Well, we got a goatee and a mustache, so his avatar is not as cool as the other two. But um, Ryan is, a, is coming up on his sixth year as a practicing planner with a master's in urban and environmental planning from ASU. Ryan has a long indulged. indulged. Ryan has long indulged his curious side with exploring technology, politics, and community awareness. All this has been in complemented with a healthy, or maybe unhealthy, dose of podcast consumption. Ryan balances his day job where he adheres to his technical advisement as a planner in Maricopa with his work as an advocate and inspiring activist in his own community of Mesa, where he co-hosts the Main Street Mesa podcast and serves as a transportation advisory board member. So Ryan, why podcasts? 
Yes, why podcasts? First off, uh, who here subscribes to a podcast? Okay. Alright, so, so you know that as this graphic describes, it's a medium that's easily accessible, it's a growing medium. But beyond that it's accessible and it's growing audience, uh, it's also just really easy for somebody to run a podcast. And so if you have this growing medium, if you have an opportunity to run something that's low cost, as you will find out, uh, and you have an idea that's worth sharing, then podcasts are, aren't bad way to go. So I have a passion for planning, I have a voice, I have a, an awesome co-host, so why not get out there and try to spread the gospel, right? So nobody became, nobody was born a planner. It all became like a discovery of piecing together a bunch of little interesting pieces of how a city works and functions, and then you fall in love with planning. Well, we show up to planning and zoning commission meetings, and where's the love? Like, they're empty. Like, and uh, we've never talked about this, David, but I'm never going to turn our podcasts into Robert Rules of Order. <laughs> no! <laughs> so, like, there's there's a, a certain amount of approachableness to a podcast that the rest of our world does not lend itself to. You know, we have technical writing, we have technical Robert's Rules of Order, public hearings. This isn't a very accessible or enjoyable format for most people who know that planning is important or think that they kind of understand how a city works or think that they might be involved in uh, but they're not sure where to start. It's an intimidating process. It's highly technical. It's boring. So a podcast is our version of trying to have some fun with it, making some space for some interesting conversations, sharing some interesting ideas about planning. And this doesn't have to stop with just advocacy. This could happen at a city as well. So I would just encourage everybody to kind of think about outside the box as to how little engagement, public engagement we have in planning and how we strive to be democratic about it, but we're failing. So, um, As somebody that's actually listened to their podcast, I can guarantee you Robert's Rules of Order is never considered. No, no. <laughs> uh, we're lucky to organize any, any sort of fashion. So we have... We have some lessons learned that, that come out of uh, running a podcast a little bit, right? So the podcast do's and don'ts. One thing that a lot of people have heard of is SoundCloud. SoundCloud is very popular, it's free, but it's only free for three hours worth of content that you upload. And we still too, talk too much. Yeah, we, we, we talk too much. Well, we, we, there's plenty of lessons to be learned. We, can't, we did not have a long enough session to get through all of the things that we learned. But some of the things that we strive for, right, having fun, uh, the point uh, to actually find space that's quiet to record with young children is not easy. Uh, staying away from the jargon, doing fun things or new things in fun ways, and uh, finding really cool people to talk with who are passionate about something about uh, downtown Mesa or the main street that's evolving and continues to evolve. To build a platform for other people who have a passion to do the same. So our audience is growing and uh, we're doing that in effort to amplify other voices. Kind of hindsight, but high, uh, for me, hindsight, but David seemed to go into this knowing that a book is a great way to organize conversations out of his exposure with the previous podcast. For me, it was kind of like learning as we're going, like, man, this is super easy. And as also having a social media outlet on Facebook and Twitter, conjuring up content and trying to be a curator for content is not easy. So picking up a book and kind of just running through it and allowing that to organize the conversation is huge. So here's 
here's what it takes to run our podcast. I call this the $2,000 recording studio you already have. Um, so everybody has their uh, phone that uh, you don't know that actually costs $700. So you just need two of those. So you're already $1,400. And a laptop or a computer, which that's another you know couple hundred dollars. But we all have it. And the microphones on phones are really good, especially now. And so basically, you can just record on your phone. And if you find a room that is quiet enough and the air conditioner or the refrigerator isn't running, you can actually get some pretty good audio quality with what you have already. And then so Audacity, free software. Podbean, relatively low cost per month hosting for uh, the content. And then we push out to Facebook and Twitter. But then when you want to have fun, if you're an audio geek or you like buying stuff, you can get uh, much better equipment. Um, you can get something like this, which is actually, if you are into music at all, uh, you might already have bought one of these. They're only like 250 bucks. But you can put microphones right into the bottom. This is a two-channel recorder, even though they advertise it as a four-channel recorder. My dream studio is actually right there. It's H6. Four channels in, so we could record this right now on it, full digital, full quality, really, really nice um, setup. Um, you know, 350 plus two microphones. Microphones you can get for as cheap as 40 bucks. If you're a nerd, you can buy a $400 one or a $4,000 one. And then the next step, this is my other dream studio setup, but not quite as portable, where you actually have a full mixing board and all that fun stuff. Um, which is nice. I priced it out. Uh, a full setup with everything you need is probably about 500 bucks max. Um, and then that's what I want. <laughs> no, that's what you want. Ah. <laughs> Fixed it. The train noise. That would be a problem. Ding, ding. All right. And then so the other part is trying to avoid editing as much as possible. You can get lost in the editing software, removing everybody's ums and uhs. And we're like, oh, wait, cut that out forever. Um, the first podcast, it probably took me two hours to edit our one hour. Um, I'm getting a little bit faster, but it's still at least an hour to edit it down. Um, when I'm more comfortable with our uh, uh, parts, I'm just leaving it in. Um, but I listen to too much national public radio, and their quality is superb. And I'm trying to do that. It's not that good. But you can do it all with Audacity, which is free software. It's super easy to learn and use. And there's lots of videos online that you can learn how to do it. Once you get it, you can mix it down. Um, where, where are we after this? You mix it down, and you can put it up. You put it as an MP3, and you send it out to wherever you're doing it. Um, and then the big thing is marketing it, getting it out so people can do. So on the left is what you should do. Is on the right is what we do. Um, so Facebook, it's all about generating uh, new content and bringing people in and having conversations. We post occasional cool things from Smart Towns and City Smart Lab. Earth America, City Lab, all that fun stuff to try and engender more conversation online. And then we can take that conversation back into the podcast for the first couple minutes. Uh, we're really excited about Tumblr. No. It exists. Um, <laughs> Twitter, you do something with our Twitter. Yeah, I don't know how to share it with you, so Twitter's all on me. I, I'm having a hard time linking it to it. 
uh, we're not masters at this, but we're fun. We'll let our way through having fun. Um, and then the podcast schedule. So if you are doing something that you think is really well, uh, you're pulled a, thought, a lot of thought together, what you should probably do is pull three, four episodes together and then launch your podcast so someone can Netflix it and watch all five episodes at a time. Um, so you're not doing that. And trying to be consistent. So you're like, I want to do this once a month. I want to do this every two weeks. We're terrible at that. Um, and even worse now that we finished the book and we're like, we're going to do this. But before that, we're going to, we're actually, our next our next exciting project that we haven't done it, done yet is uh, we have uh, two breweries on Main Street, a third one coming, um, well, it's a cidery, and then, and then a fourth one coming at some point long in the future. And we're going to go interview all these people. And it's going to be a giant project. And I'm going to, you know that one that I said don't edit? I'm going to do a lot of editing on that. Here's some quick samples of what, uh, what we post on Facebook. One of the cool things about Podbean, if you're interested in doing this, is they've taken our audio and they basically create a video for us, right? That's uh, listening that you can listen to straight out of Facebook. So we're getting some hits on that. Uh, they, headquarters too of Amazon was a really interesting buzz thing. We get to talk about you know, you know, where is Mesa at uh, even coming close to trying to try Who's something like that? applied for HQ two? <laughs> Don't lie. Everybody here so, did. Bill, so, I know you did. You know, one of the things that we hear uh, from some of our followers on, on uh, this uh, Facebook is, you guys are talking about all the wrong things. We need to talk about jobs. It's, it's like, okay, well, here, here's headquarters, too. Are we ready? Like, is the job just going to pop up if we ask them nice enough? So, you know, you get to talk about what it takes to set the scene. Uh, kind of get into some nerdy stuff, and then we do teasers like uh, David's like little screenshot there of uh, him editing. Here's a list of the episodes that we put out. This is officially episode 11 of our own series. We also had a special presentation because uh, we're involved in Rail Mesa. David uh, really did the heavy lifting on this housing event talk, the topic that uh, we really had fun with, and our current reach is continues to grow. We've had over. Uh, 600 downloads, the 384 from Podbean, the 287 prior on SoundCloud. Uh, and then we're uploading to the universe. I'll let David talk about what it takes to get syndicated. Google directions on how to syndicate your podcast so it shows up. Because <laughs> it's important that it shows up. And now we move on to actually have a podcast. All right. Thanks, guys. We do, you know, we do have a couple minutes. Um, we want to, we wanted to break up the technical side of how to podcast from the actual um, practice of doing a podcast. So if we have a couple minutes. If you have any questions, or anybody have questions on doing a podcast for Brian or David, we are amazing presenters. <laughs> no questions. <laughs> So this is our recording setup right now. We all have our phones in front of us right now. I borrowed that Zoom from my friend. He doesn't know I have it. I have my wife's old iPhone 4. I have an old Galaxy. I use my current phone as a note taker. This is how we do it. This is the magic behind the, you're looking behind the curtain. All right. So we're going to move on to uh, the last... 35 minutes, hopefully, um, recording a podcast. But well, before we get there, let's introduce you to your panelists today. You have me, again, your guest host, Jeff McBay, Ryan Wozniak, another, or, or 
original host and David Crummy, the original host. Our, our esteemed but very patient panelists are with us today. Um, Milagro Singoni is an assistant professor at the design school at Arizona State University. Originally from Argentina, Milagros believes that innovation comes from communication between disciplines and collaboration between the community and professionals with perhaps different backgrounds but similar goals. Her unique experience as both designer and educator provides a fresh lens to understand student-centered approaches physically and pedagogically. So, Milagros, I thought you put that word in there just to trip me up. Her studies focus on community and commitment to public engagement. This has given her a unique focused insight on how people relate to one another and how the built environment influences them in the process. She's a registered architect in Patagonia, Argentina, and has also studied habitat design and urban environmental planning. Ram Pedalea is a professor of transportation systems and director of a US DOT sponsored university transportation center in, in the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment. Wow, they really named their schools there, don't they? Um, at Arizona State University as well, where he has served, as, served on the faculty since 2006. Between 2014 and 2016, he served as the Frederick R. Dickerson Endowed Chair and Professor of Transportation in the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech does a good job of really long names with their schools too. Um, he is an expert in the analysis of traveler behavior and values and studies of the impacts of new and emerging technologies on cities and peoples. He has published more than 150 papers and completed more than $7 billion in sponsored research. He is the chair and is the chair of the Planning and Environmental Group at, of Transportation Research Board and Associate Editor of the Transportation Research Part D. He has his PhD and Master's degree in Civil Engineering with a focus in transportation from the University of California at Davis. All right, gentlemen, the floor is all yours. Welcome to Mainstream Mesa. <laughs> <laughs> David does the honors with the intros. Well, the, no, we're not. I think we'll just record that later. Oh, okay. We're gonna. Re Let's just get this is the magic of uh, doing things. Like that. Yeah. So you know, this is how their podcasts sound that are out there now. It is. Yes. <laughs> All right then. Well, without further ado, we did give our uh, we we gave our esteemed guests here a little homework uh, a couple months ago to one read the book if they could, and to uh, keep in mind Mesa and really think about what two uh, pieces of Jeff Speck's advice out of the book they think best it, it, Mesa is best suited to take on right now to have an immediate impact. So if you're not familiar with the layout of the book, it's 10 steps of walkability. This is all, Each one of these is basically a chapter. And so, uh, with that, with that, I will turn it over to you guys. What did what stood out to you as two really good pieces of advice out of the book? Um, sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So, uh, you know, as I uh, read the book, um, and, and I and I am from a school of sustainable engineering. Can everybody hear? Environment. So I come from a bit of an engineering perspective. Uh, but I certainly uh, work at the nexus of engineering and planning um, and what do we want our cities and urban spaces to look like. So, uh, you know, as I looked at kind of the 10-step uh, recipe in the book on walkable cities, you know, things that struck out, are, you know, struck me are things like, you know, mixing up the land uses. So diversity of land uses, mixing up the land uses, and giving folks a sense of place 
So whatever you can do in terms of the facade and just, uh, just the uh, ecosystem, uh, I think giving a sense of place, and I think there's a couple of steps that kind of fall into that realm uh, of making it a very appealing public space. So to give an excuse for people to be there, live there, stay there, and participate in all of their activities and travel there. So I think those are reasonably low-hanging fruit. I'm not so sure, uh, because I don't quite uh, work for perhaps in that ecosystem. Uh, but I think uh, it does revolve heavily around land, land use and the urban form. I think urban form has a heavy impact on traveler behavior, how people make their choices about how, where, and when to travel and participate in activities and with whom. And uh, so those are a couple of things that, uh, that struck me uh, right away. Um, hello, everyone. So at, at, at some point, I, I agree with you. I have the, the, lucky to, the luck of uh, presenting in a conference in 2013 after Jeff. So I got all the fresh ideas that he was presenting back then. And to me, it's about uh, diversity. And when I talk about diversity, I talk about uh, how can we mix things as much as possible. Uh, is the diversity of people, is the diversity of activities, uh, is the diversity of opportunities, uh, is the diversity of how we can engage our body, right? What happens if I want to talk to my neighbor or to gather with a friend or my kid wants to play in the sidewalk or I want to sit and just people look people pass by. Uh, this idea of kind of looking in particularly of the program of downtown uh, but with a whole different lens that well, how we have been doing it, right? We, if, if we look at Plato uh, or Platon for Spanish speakers, the philosopher, we tend to organize the world in types and categories. We classify everything because it's the way that we understand the world better. And through time, we have developed these typologies, right? And for downtown, the latest kind of cool thing to do was to work, play, and live in the same place, right? That's a type of built form that we are trying to create. But as we, the technology evolved, and we all have these little phones and internet that allow us to shop from home and work from the cafe, these typologies are evolving into something else. And I think that we have to change the status quo, just doing exactly the same that we have been doing for the last 50 years in the terms that they were vibrant. Uh, we need to add uh, how technology is changing our behavior and our social behavior. So that would be the two that I would choose. Okay. So I heard making an excuse for people to choose to live in an urban place through urban form. And I heard people watching being one of the major magnets for why people choose to live in denser, diverse locations. That, that's that's kind of those are very simple ideas, and those ideas are definitely baked into the book. If I had to try to put them in where to find them in the book, I would say that making friendly and unique faces. So there's a lot of talk about like the urban form, right, and how how urban form can engage people and make people feel welcomed and comfortable in spaces and protecting the pedestrian and there's a, I love this concept that he has in the book called Missing Teeth, where there's so many 
buildings in a row. And if you kind of squeeze in enough buildings into a block face with a lot of diversity, not only is it, it draws diversity of people with the diversity of places, but it also makes you feel in, a, in an outdoor room, right? And so that's probably where we're picking up a lot of these ideas out of. Um, and, you know, when, when I was thinking about the homework for our panelists, you know, one of, the, one of the things that is baked into this podcast is number 10. Pick your winners. We pick Main Street. Main Street is baked into the name of this podcast. It is part of why we do this. We are, we are picking a winner. We are running with it. We're baking all of this topic and, and, and thinking about what Mesa is along Main Street. So that was kind of a slam dunk for us. Is, is we already did pick our winner. And here's Jeff. Well, you, you started hitting on something that I thought we should talk about in, in that picking the winners idea. Um, in the book, uh, Spec has this... He has this concept, it's called urban triage. And if you think about um, World War II and medics on, the, on, on Normandy Beach, you know, they, they performed triage to put their efforts into those that they could actually save, and they had to make the tough choice and say, all right, so some people us aren't worth the effort, we have to let them go. Speck's idea is that you apply this to your city as well. We all work, we all work for cities that have scarce resources. Budgets are tough. Um, so where we spend our money is important, that we're not trying to spread it the pe- this idea of spreading the peanut butter over the entire city for equity is actually hurting us. You need to put your money where, where it's going to be the most useful. You need to perform triage on, on your city. And in that case, downtown is where, where you should be focusing because it's downtown that the most can probably happen. The downtown is what other, you know, Ryan brought up Amazon HQ2. Mesa did put in an application, but I, I have no no illusions that Mesa is even going to get their application looked at. Besides the, I mean, if we ignore the, the overt bidding war that Amazon asked for from cities, if we ignore that part of it, if you looked at every other criteria they had, it's about a walkable city. It's about a city that people want to live in. It's about a place that they can attract employees for, you know, 50,000 employees. So it's a whole different mindset. If, it, if that's what Amazon's doing, then if we're going to be a success as a city, if we're going to be you know, if we're going to be here 50 years from now and it's going to be actually full of people, we got to start thinking about the things that are going to attract the Amazons. Or hopefully not Amazons because they'll ruin our downtown. <laughs> well, Just adding 50,000 jobs to the little thing, that, that's only what? 15 times the number of jobs? No, it's only 40 times. 10 times. So the, the idea of urban triage is something that actually, uh, one, when, when we posted that some of these things on our, our Facebook page, I think that was the one that it got the most contentious because they're like, well, Mesa's 127, 30, 36, uh, 130 square miles, and we're really talking about one to six square miles that are sort of our downtown-ish, our transit corridor. And they're like, well, well, what about those places? And and I don't have a good answer other than we don't have enough money to do everything everywhere. Uh, we're already West Mesa deeply subsidized the East Mesa development, you know. So Mesa went from one square miles to seven square miles to 130 square miles pretty quickly, and. West Mesa subsidized it, and then West Mesa got forgotten. Um, people moved out to Gilbert and Queen Creek and Chandler and Maricopa, <laughs> and, and retained their properties for rental 
properties in West Mesa. And now we're at that point where our 100-year-old, our 70-year-old infrastructure is starting to need to be replaced. And I'm hearing complaints from people in East Mesa going, why are we subsidizing West Mesa and all their old stuff? And uh, we, we're not able to have that an honest discussion about what that looks like. And also, I'm also confronted with the idea of choice. People want to live out in a, an hour commute to their job. People want to live in a place where uh, they get access to the desert until it moves one development over. Um, people want to have access, want to live in a, a, a walled subdivision. And I know that all of those things are the opposite of what a walkable city is. And we've spent 70 years building something that isn't a walkable city. But our downtown is truly the only place in Mesa that is truly walkable, that has those benefits that are there. And if we're going to attract the type of employers that downtown Phoenix is, the warehouse district is, those types of things, if we're going to attract those type of people, the type of activity that has retail that's successful, that's going to survive the, the coming retail apocalypse that doesn't exist but does, um, we have to have these conversations and engage with our public. And I think that's the number one thing that's not on this list is public engagement. We're really terrible as, as a state about involving the public in our public decisions, in our public governance, and with how we design our city. We don't have these conversations. It's not just us. We all get to point, you know, my, my first grade teacher, when you point at him, Remember, you have three fingers pointing back at you. And uh, I think we have to think about that too, is how do we engage? Mesa is a city of half a million people. Our downtown corridor has 50% Latino representation that live there, but not that show up to anything. So what are we missing? So my best answer for the why triage and why downtown Mesa is because downtowns are really the only place in the city that's for everybody. Right? Otherwise, the equity decision around the table become why their neighborhood and not my neighborhood. You know, downtown is really the inviting place and the, the, the core of where everybody can gather. And so that's my best answer. I, I'd like to invite our guests to reflect on some of the, what's talked about. So to me, it's super fascinating because when we talk about urban triage, the first thing that, I get, that comes to my mind are all the cities in Europe that were destroyed because of World War II. Uh, and you know that they really need to bring life into the city. The second thing that comes to my mind is your discussion with budget that we don't have the money to do everything. And the third one is your comment on pick your winners. So when I when I put all three things together, to me it's, it's very easy. At least the case study that comes to my mind that is what uh, Aldo Van Eyck, that he was an architect and an urban planner in Rotterdam after World War II. Basically, the winner that he picked were the kids. Basically, he said um, the city is just a reflection that 90% of the city was destroyed because of bombs. Everybody sad and depressed because it's the constant reminder of the war. Uh, and he believed that it was through the kids that we could bring life into the city, happiness into the city. And what he did is that he replaced every demolished building by a bomb by a very cheap playground. Not the big ones as we know them, you know, slides and swings. Even cheaper than that, they were pieces of steel, monkey bars or kind of monkey bars, but they were super geometric, very abstract, very easy to build. He built 2,700 of them in five years, 
And if you build it, they will come. So the fact that there were all these playful places within the city, children wanted to go and play. Then moms and grandmas need to go and watch those kids. And because the moms and the grandmas were there, then coffee places were opening and bookstores were opening. So it's basically trying to find what is the, what is the, the thing that's going to be overpaid to bring everything else, right? Julia Caesar said, build it and they will come. Uh, so what's going to be the strategy for the downtown Mesa and for anyone that wants to create this workable city? Uh, I agree. I mean, build it and they will come. So if you see, I mean, if you look at the headwinds, I mean, there's a lot of interest in urban living. I think there's just this force of gentrification. So when I was living in Atlanta, you could just see cranes everywhere where the uh, midtown Atlanta is just experiencing resurgence. I see you know, these trends across the country, uh, both with the aging baby boomers uh, deciding that, you know, I, I no longer need you know, this kind of a size of a house and this kind of a yard and everything that goes with maintaining it. I want to you know, have access to, uh, to a density of opportunities that I currently don't have. And as they look into the sunset years of their driving years and so on, and they don't want to drive long distances, um, I think there's a demographic phenomenon that we can really take advantage of. Because you got the, you know, got the aging baby boomers on the one hand, but you also have the millennials on the other hand, who also have potentially a different mindset. But unless we act fast, we're going to lose them. Okay, so as they start having kids and they start having, you know, thinking about schools and crime and safety and big yards for the kids to play and all those kinds of things, we're going to lose the millennial generation and have history repeat itself. So how do we avoid that? By creating a sense of place. We've got to create the communities and we've got to create these options for living that are extremely appealing for for millennials who are beginning to reach their life cycle milestones. And uh, you know, now is the time to seize the opportunity. Um, you know, I, I got to the part of the book about, you know, kill traffic engineers and <laughs> traffic studies, and, you know, part of my part of my French and so on. So uh, you know, and I, I, it didn't make me mad at all. Um, but I think there is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that I don't think traffic engineers were necessarily asked to do anything different. Um, so communities need to come up with a vision of what they want to look like, what their communities should be in the future. And I'm sure traffic engineers would be happy to design streets with a road diet, with very short turning radii, and your fire chief can probably buy smaller trucks, okay, and put up fires just <laughs> fine. All right, so again, there needs to be a vision. Do you want the need for speed, right? And, and kind of, you know, uh, perpetuate that myth that people have this need for speed versus do you want to create a vision which actually feeds to a need for community and a sense of belonging? Awesome. So, Ram, traffic engineers don't hate pedestrians, right? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, every time we have, um, looking at our safety statistics, we do pay a lot of attention to pedestrian fatalities and what are some of the engineering design decisions that we are potentially making that's contributing to the increase in pedestrian uh, fatalities. 
so certainly there is uh, a lot of concern about bicyclists and pedestrians and, 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 and all the road users. Um, but uh, there's also, again, where traffic engineering meets, meets the legal and political climate. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it's very easy for somebody to sue a DOT or a city or an engineer about, you know, site distances and was this designed properly and, you know, and so on. And so there's, you know, some of those dynamics that have to be recognized in, in what we have created for ourselves. I'll, I'll remember that when I, next time I don't send my kids to the park that's across a six-lane, 45-mile-an-hour uh, neighborhood street. <laughs> uh, but what, but we, the reality is, is that, you know, especially in downtown Mesa, we started 100 years ago. Cars were just being invented or were playthings of rich people. And then, and then the, the entire landscape of the city changed. And so from when we went from one square mile to seven square miles, we're still in the pre-1940, we pretty walkable. We had wide streets, but that was because of the, the Platte of Zion concept. And it's actually been a great benefit for what we have. But then we had between 1935 and today, where we built basically a bedroom subdivision. So we went from being the hub of the East Valley to the households for downtown Phoenix. And so we have 70, 80 years of intervening time where we built a completely different community that isn't a great place. It isn't attractive to an Amazon. Um, which is okay. Can I say that? I don't know. It's okay. It's not. Okay. Did you see the love? Did anyone see the love Little Rock campaign they put out? That was the best response to Amazon. They put a full page advertisement in the New York Times that said, thanks Amazon, but we're amazing without you. Um, call us if you want to do something smaller. It, really cute. Best response I've seen. And it's probably cheaper than actually replying to the full thing. So we have 70, 80 years of a built environment. We have big streets, uh, University and Broadway, that are basically freeways through our neighborhoods. And if we were to tomorrow drop drop those lanes, drop the speed limit to a reasonable amount, allow you know children to cross the street without fear of death, and did that tomorrow, we would probably collapse our economy. So my question is, how do we look at a transition to a safer, more people-oriented community where I could feel safe sending my kids across the street to the nearest park? Um, but without destroying, you know, right now we have traffic backups and traffic's an issue. But how do we make that transition happen now, not just with the reality that we have now with everyone driving single person cars and not being super interested in our mediocre transit services, and then thinking about whatever bizarre future there is where we're all in self-driving cars or something like that. How, what does that transition look like, especially in a community like Mesa, where we have part of it, and we ruined the other part, and we want to fix it, but without breaking everything in the middle? I'm going to do the co-host thing of, of dovetailing that and supporting that question, because it's a great question. So how do we do it? But also, who, who does it? And I, I have a feeling that I'm going to get some incrementalism uh, answers, right? But I want you to try to take it down another level. 
like try to dig into this how do we make incrementalism happen who does it and what drives that that process it's a very good question to me the first thing and i'm not supposed to say this you told me but the city needs to stop growing in suburbia uh, so we can start densifying a little bit more that's what is happening with tempe if you look at tempe and how tempe is going so well with density it's because it's the only landlocked city um, and, and I think that we, we need to put uh, a stop to the growth of the suburbia. Uh, Jeff Specks mentioned um, in a conversation that I was having to him with him when, when we were talking together uh, in 2013 was that to reduce the distance between destination and final destination, uh, with origin and final destination, right? It's, what happens right now is because everything in Mesa is suburbia you are required to at least drive 15 miles to go to your work, if not more, 30, 40, 50. Uh, so what's happening is like um, the ease of Mesa became what I call a dormitory. You go only to sleep, but you work somewhere else. So what the city, I think, that needs to do as one of the strategies is like it has to have micro centers that, of local employment within the city. So, because then, if you if you only need to drive six or seven miles to your work, you don't have you don't have the rush of being 50 or 60 miles per hour in university, uh, because your distance is shorter. Uh, so, that would be to me the, the first step uh, to close the growth, and then start to create more local employment to reduce the distances. But I also wanted to go with this idea of the six miles and your children trying to cross the street. Think how many of you have ever had an accident in the grocery store with your shopping cart? You don't, right? And you don't because the, when you don't have all the traffic engineer designs that tells you how you are supposed and so forth, you pay more attention, right? So what happens is like we, we are living in a built environment that has made us so efficient, right, that we don't pay attention. And that's one of the reasons that we go so fast. But when, as a driver, if I know that kids will be crossing the street, I will not be going to 60 miles per hour. So it has been, there is a, a, a theory called shared spaces. It has been done in the Netherlands for the last 30 years. There is an extensive body of work, and there are four cities that have transformed from 50, 60 miles per hour to being walkable communities. Uh, the thing is, What's the first step to do that when we live in a city that is car-oriented? I mean, if you think that you do everything from the car, my family come from Argentina and they tell me, and you go to the ATM through the car? You don't park your car or, or walk to the bank? They just couldn't believe it, that there is an ATM drive through right? And, and to me, because I have been here for so long, it became normal. And when I go to Argentina, I complain that they don't have so I, I, I think that it's, we have to also set a level of discomfort so we can improve in the things that is better for the society. So uh, I agree that I think that you know, some hard political type decisions have to be made about uh, urban growth boundaries and where new subdivisions and new developments are going to be allowed. So I think there has to be some sort of restriction, something like what Portland, Oregon has done. Of course, that has implications for housing affordability and so on. So you have to kind of balance some of these considerations. Um, but, but you know, to some degree, I think the issue with the 45, 50 mile per hour, six lane arterials, and so on, happens because 
You don't have places that are destinations. So the, place, the, the places have essentially become pass-through, and when, you are, when you're just passing through, you want to pass through at 50 miles per hour on a six-lane arterial. But if, the, if it becomes the place, if it becomes the destination, you're happy to go 30 miles per hour on a two-lane and, and just find it's a still place, too fast. You know, so, so it's a very different mindset when you're suddenly looking at the place as your destination, as the place where you participate and undertake activities. Now, having said that, I mean, you know, we're doing a session on walkable cities, and we're at the most non-walkable location. Who walked here could, today? That I could possibly, <laughs> possibly think of. I mean, I think it'd be nice if planners actually uh, held walkable city sessions in walkable cities. <laughs> but anyway. All right, Jeff, what are we doing? <laughs> that, is, what, what, that, what, that is actually perfect, because what I was going to say is that, that as a city, and I'm going to vote for the incrementalism side, because it's the most realistic when we think about our budgets, but as a city, uh, when I had my little opening, I had our wonderful downtown vision up there. And we all know what the vision is. Our council adopted it. It got approved. We all know what it is. But then we've we got to get out of our way. You know, We've got to quit making decisions that are contrary, completely contrary to the vision that we established. <laughs> and I'm going to use a little pet peeve. And I know this is one of David's favorite pet peeves about our downtown, too. It's, it's pedestrian signals. We have light rail going through our downtown. And it takes me a minute and 20 seconds to go from the north side of Main Street to the south side of Main Street because I have to hit a button, and the traffic engineers have determined that cars are still primary downtown. So I have to wait a full cycle for that traffic signal before I can cross the street. So guess what? Jaywalking. I jaywalk every day that I walk out in downtown. And guess what? You look in the newspaper about Mesa, we have a scourge of jaywalking in our city now. Why? Because we made it so that's the best choices available to somebody. So if you want to signal to people that downtown is a walkable environment, maybe your signals ought to actually, your physical signals ought to actually match that. So how do we do that? Here we are, the manager of downtown transformation. This is something that I was on the light rail advisory board when we were in building this, and I said, this cannot happen. Tempe, one of their, I, I've gone to as many light rail stops as I can and tried, which one do I have to press the beg button? I found one in Tempe, and I want to find out how they did it because I want to convince our traffic engineers that we can. But I asked as a citizen advisor on our advisory board, and they said, we'll look into it. Well, guess what? They can change that signal timing because I've asked. And I was told that, well, until there's more people down here, we don't need to do that. And, and my <laughs> response to them is, well, if you want more people down here, then you need to do that. Uh, so the second answer to David's question is, well, let's create more people. So what is our focus in downtown? Housing, housing and housing, right? We have 3,500 residents in a square mile. That's actually the lower population density per square mile than the rest of the city, all right? And that's our downtown. So it's time to change that. It needs to be that downtown is the most dense place so the people are the ones that rule it, and that, that our traffic engineers, and, and, and I'll be honest, it's not just our traffic engineers, it's our leaders, our management, that they have to see that the people are number one in the list of downtown. I'd like to uh, come back to this idea of discomfort, because I think when we create vision for places, sometimes we don't realize that getting there creates this you know, idea that you're going to have to set priorities that may be uncomfortable. 
And unless we're baking that into conversations that are had at the visionary level and, and, and doing a little forecasting and breaking out our crystal ball and saying, okay, now that you told us what you want out of a vision, what do we need out of leadership to make that vision happen? And so like incrementalism, when we think about uh, how to change the environment in small bits and pieces, I think there's also an incrementalism on the political side of the spectrum. So we have to prepare our leadership to start making those incremental changes mentally as to where their priorities are. Uh, David, do you have anything to add? So I think at this point, maybe we'll take each other, each of us take a, a minute and give us our sort of like last thought from the book and, and then we'll get out to your questions to either ask about the book, about how your community is similar or different, um, or uh, just ask us random questions. Um, I know a little bit about nothing. Uh, I just have maybe a couple of points to make. One is, um, unlike the book, um, I see engineers and planners very complementary to each other. So I strongly urge that the communities work together. And I think together, we can actually accomplish a lot. Um, if we just have the vision as to what kind of a place we want to create. Um, the second is I think that we need to try to harness public-private partnerships. Mm -hmm. So if we can somehow incentivize developers to come into downtown, create housing options that are very appealing, then I think we'll have the population, you know, critical mass that will essentially bring other appealing destinations and locations and businesses and, and, and other um, amenities to a downtown that it will make, that, that will make it you know, a downtown place. So. Yeah, I will add to your list of partnerships that designers need to be in the conversation with the traffic engineers and the, and the planners because they are the three together who made the build environment. Uh, to me, you know, as an architect, as an urban planner, I have been trained to look at case studies, to look at best practices and see what I can learn from someone else who did it before me. But very often we make the mistake of looking at case studies as a something that we want to duplicate. And I think that we need to really be forward thinking from the point of view that uh, as a community, as a society, we are changing because of all the evolution with technology. So we really need to learn from those best practices, but we need to change the status quo, and we have to be very innovative so we can transform the city. To me, innovation and transformation goes together. I can do something innovative, but if I don't transform the public, why bother? Uh, so to me, this, this idea of transformation becomes very important, and that's when just applying what someone else did in another place may not apply to Mesa. Uh, and with that goes the sense of place, the fact that we are in the desert, the fact that it's October and we are still in 98 degrees, right? So when we talk about walkability and when we talk about discomfort, there is another layer of discomfort that is the fact that we live in the desert. So that's when the designers coming together with the planners is very important because there are so many desert cities that they are designed in such a way that at the, at the pedestrian level, there is a level of atmospheric comfort that we don't have it in the city. Uh, so I, I think that we need to 
think the bigger picture of what are the, the, the elements that they are missing, but we also know we need to be looking forward uh, of what is it that we want as a society, how often do we want to see our neighbors, and do we want to know that the neighbor got pregnant and now she's walking with her baby and so forth instead of being totally isolated within our own cars? Jeff. Right. You know, one of the goals that I have, which may be unrealistic or maybe it's realistic, but if if somebody's listening to this podcast and all of a sudden becomes gung-ho advocate for coming to the city and engaging with the city as to you put into action Jeff Speck's advice, how, how would you advise somebody to do that? Where's, where's the, the levers in the ASA? I don't know if Ryan was reading my mind over there because we didn't actually plan this. Because I was going to say one of my biggest takeaways from this book overall is how you talk to the people that make decisions. All of you in this room, you we haven't said anything in here that's really a surprise to you, I don't think. You probably this this makes sense to all of you. Somehow or not, somehow for some reason or another, that's not translating on to those people that actually make decisions. Or it's translating and they're just not listening to us. One or the other. We just have to change how we talk to them so that they listen to us. And one thing I'm what I took away from Jeff Speck's book more than anything is the one thing that uh, council members gonna listen to, your city manager's gonna listen to, it usually has a dollar sign in the front of it. Walkability is about economic development. Walkability is about the future economic success of our city. I mean, I want a walkable city because that's where I want to live, but I can do a better job of convincing people how to get a walkable city by telling them that this is actually financially beneficial to the city overall. Uh, and that, I, I don't know if that's getting to your question, but when somebody comes in and they want to you know, you know, pull the levers of, of power, it's with economics that they're always talking about it. They aren't talking about, you know, there there is, you know, socially conscious developers, and I'm lucky that we have a couple that are working in Mesa right now, but they still are coming in this with a profit motive involved in it. And so we've got to continue to think about it that way. Do we have a business community that's open to starting that dialogue? A business community downtown? Yes. I mean, we have a grassroots but Our downtown Mesa, it's amazing. It has two national chains in one square mile. We only have two national chains. So we have, we have a bunch of owner-operated businesses in downtown. I, I think we might have one of the most entrepreneurial downtowns there is. So they, they, they see the future. They know that this is good for them. They want to see a walkable downtown. They want to see more people living there because it's going to be good for their business as well. I'll add that's two national chains out of about 237 businesses to give you a frame of reference. We have two chains! Only two businesses. <laughs> um, no, and, and, and you're absolutely right about that. Um, my takeaway from the book and this conversation has really been about the idea of triage um, and about trying to find that true incrementalism, but flipping that script and thinking about people first looking at people who are already walking and already working towards that and trying to work. So if you're you're seeing people outside walking and the biggest issue you see right there is trees, plant some trees. Finding those little things, looking at all those steps and say, what can we do right now that makes that difference? Because involving the community allows you to attack the bigger issue and go back to council and go back to staff and all of that. If you're not bringing the neighborhoods along with it, if no one is feeling benefited from the fancy new park that no one can get to or something like that, there's not there's not going to be that benefit. Because in the long run, what's important is that our residents stay put. They don't move from town to town to town. 
they can find their opportunity here, they can find everything they need. And that will take time, but we need to start from square one. We have 10 minutes, so we'll get to questions. Um, I'll add an 11th step. My takeaway in this book is that there's a, there's a critical gap. Build your coalitions. What, what this podcast means for me is that somebody might download it and decide that their voice could make a difference at a city council meeting, at a PNC meeting, at a, a plan reach out uh, events and things of that nature. I want to give pe bolster people's confidence that they could be involved and if they like the message that we're spreading, hopefully that that uh, will educate their vernacular, their ability to come and talk about these issues, and if we can build a, a, the people-centered coalition around where the city is headed, then maybe we get a little bit more uh, activists uh, helping spread our, our message. Uh, but uh, we'd love to have your voice on the podcast, too. So if, if this discussion has uh, inspired any questions, please share. You have to. It's not optional. Yeah, we've got to get some other voices on this. So any questions? How about comments? Comment. Has Nisa thought about using this technique of the post-podcast to invite the elected officials and express what their vision is about their downtown element of their general plan so the population that is listening, the development community, because whoever has the money is the one that needs to get involved. Maybe the development community will listen to the elected officials while they are sitting and they come. Possibly, we need to explore different venues because we all here agree with the book and the principles, but I mean, who needs to be involved to move to the next step to make the destination point so places work for the millennials and for the baby boomers? If there's nothing there for me to offer, um, I won't go there. I won't buy there. So uh, we need to think in a different way. Maybe bring to the table elected officials, development community, and use those new technologies and involve all of them and see what is the city seeking, looking for in their big picture of it. Thank you. Okay. Is there questions? Other comments? So you've convinced me that downtown Mesa is a great place to be. What are my housing options? What yeah, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, so you know what? There is housing options in downtown. Downtown Mesa has is home to seven, I believe, six of the seven National Register Historic Districts, or not, they're not all registered, National Register, six of the seven Register Historic Districts in the city, several of which are National Register. Um, I happen to live in one that isn't in downtown, just outside. I'm going to make, that's part of my job, I'm going to make my home part of downtown by the time <laughs> I'm done with my career. Um, so we have, we have great single-family neighborhoods that ring our downtown. Um, so if you want a single-family house, no problem. You want to live in an apartment? We got a problem. <laughs> right? we, our, our youngest apartment in downtown is 30 years old. And so it's, it's a suburban garden style. But you know what's amazing about that garden apartment? It's getting the same rents as downtown Tempe apartments. Why? Because it's the newest and the only thing that's available, and it's on a light rail stock. Economics again. Why are we having an apartment? We have, I would say, right now we are working with developers that are 
well over a thousand units that are in the works right now, just in downtown. And why are they there? Because there's a 30-year-old apartment complex that's pulling a buck seventy-five a square foot. That's why they're there. Because the downtown Tempe is not getting a dollar seventy-five. That's over two dollars a square foot. All right. <laughs> I'm an advocate for downtown Mesa. I'm an advocate. You know, the biggest benefit is that all of our apartment complexes, whether they're market rate, we have one affordable senior project in our downtown, and we will have our first affordable family um, project coming down. But every single one of them has a wait list. And the minute I get asked all the time, where can I move? And it's, it's hard because we have one part where we have half million dollar uh, single family homes in a historic district. On the other side, we have homes that are $130,000 that you're not sure that you're going to want to live in within a thousand feet from each other. And then we also have our, our problems. So our, our opportunities in our, in our apartment complexes, but overall, we need more. And we have a whole bunch of, we have a thousand units of development that's all waiting for somebody to go first because we don't have a market, we don't have something that you can look around on and say like, oh, a bank's gonna lend me money, no. All right, one more question. So after this conference this weekend, I'm gonna go spend some time with my in-laws who live in Mesa, they live around Southern and Lindsay, and I'm gonna have to retry and convince them that the improvements, the, the light rail in, in downtown Mesa is actually a good thing, you know? Um, and for people who are convinced that, oh my goodness, they've ruined Main Street, they've ruined the Southern um, by some of the changes <laughs> that they made, lowering the speed limit. So I'm, I'm curious, has your podcast or have any of the outreach efforts, um, how have you been able to dispel some myths or uh, help convince people that some of these changes have actually been made? I'm going to let these guys answer the podcast, but do your grandparents drink beer? <laughs> No. no. I was going to say, that's the easiest answer. Go to Oral and you'll be able to convince them it's great. So uh, the quick answer to uh, how do you dispel the, the myths that the NIMBYs hold on to, uh, my, my number one uh, thing that's motivating me to show up and do this podcast is to just outnumber those NIMBYs. I, I'm trying to convert some YIMBYs because, you know, it's just, it's just building that coalition. Um, so... But to dispel myths, I think we had uh, the housing discussion that we helped organize, which its primary goal was to replace myth with facts. But uh, I'll let David talk about myth busting. Oh, I can't. <laughs> it's a short answer. Guys, there's a great report by Enterprise Community Development that actually talks about busting myths. Um, I, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's, it's all about like 10 things that we all do wrong trying to dispel myths. Mostly about housing, but uh, it's pretty much all about the backfire effect. The number one thing you can do is you come downtown Mesa. Go see a show at the Art Center. I hear people like, oh, downtown Mesa is terrible. And then I'm like, oh, really? When was the last time you were there? And they're like, 1986. I'll never go back. And I'm like, I wouldn't have gone back either in 1986. And, you know, but it's also about your frame of reference because I hear all the time, well, there's nothing open after 6 p.m. or there's only two people and I don't want pizza and I don't want a sandwich. And I'm like, all right, think about your neighborhood. What's open after that? Well, if you drive four miles, there's an Applebee's. And I'm like, all right, so you're talking about our local businesses and there are options and then you're comparing it to your neighborhood where there's nothing. 
And uh, I had the same conversation about it. I'm like, all right, so you're complaining about this after town. All right, downtown Phoenix. What's up? You walk out of the ball game, it's 9 o'clock at night, and you want to grab a bite to eat. What's open? It's not. Well, now, now there is. <laughs> Sunday at 3, 3 p.m., what's open? You got downtown Phoenix, but that's like downtown Phoenix Market, a few other places. And, like, and that's the metro center of our state has like four places that are open. And you're talking about a smaller town. So it's really about comparison. Uh, and just coming to visit. Have that conversation. You know, and I hope you bring them down, and I hope that their mind changes. But, you know, some at some point, we, you have to do urban triage. I guess you have to do triage on the people you're trying to convince, too. Some people are never going to change their minds. I mean, you just have to accept it. And, and are those the people we want to track to downtown anyway? So to some degree, in public, I will never give up on a soul. In public, I will, I will continue to try to convince them and make the arguments that are going to make the difference. But privately, sometimes I just walk away from a person and say, it's a lost cause. I can't convince that person anyway. So there is some of that to, look, to expect. We have time for probably one more question. I just have a comment. So I, I conducted a, uh, an audit out of uh, Fort, Fort Worth, Texas. So I'm, I'm a transplant from, from Texas. And the audit fo focused on uh, the, the walkability of their downtown. And uh, the thing that I found that was most impressive was the fact that their parking was incredibly affordable, during, both during the week and during the weekend. But what was even more incredible was the, responsive, the responsiveness of the traffics, uh, the, cr the crosswalk, the signals. So when, when, when you push that button across, like the light would turn turn red and, and, and you, you would beat traffic that was on the street. So it, it made it really inconvenient for cars, but really um, convenient to park. And, and, and to walk too, because you, you would beat you would beat cars. So you, if if you paid if you paid attention to, to the car that you were following, you could you could essentially arrive at at, at the same place at the same time. So Probably could have made this entire session about parking if we wanted to. I, yeah, I was just going to say we have the most affordable parking in the entire universe. If you park at the Mesa Art Center, we give you a five dollar voucher to our downtown businesses. So uh, yeah, that's if you don't know better and you actually pay the parking downtown Mesa, which is kind of a novelty in itself. <laughs> Six thousand free parking spots. Eleven thousand parking spots. Eleven thousand public and private. Any last questions? Yeah. All right. How do you manage the halfway houses in downtown Mason? What halfway houses? I don't think we have any. Oh, I know we did. Not that are registered. <laughs> one, of them, one of them became um, the, the oldest hotel in downtown Mason became student housing for Benedictine University this year. So that's one of them. Um, you don't manage them, right? Well, you, you don't manage them from, it's not your job to manage them, it's somebody else's manager. Your job is to, to, to make sure that they aren't the only thing in your downtown. And that your job is to make sure that, that other things happen in downtown so that those owners find out that their value, their property is so valuable that they can go out to some other place and buy an old rundown motel and turn that into halfway houses. And this, and this beautiful historic building that's been not gotten, has gotten no maintenance in the last 30 years becomes something productive, like the Alhambra Hotel, which is now 60 beds for student housing. It's beautiful, it's a restoration. 
And we'll say we have two or three pathway house providers in our downtown that actually do a great job. They do, they work uh, really well with their residents and they're actually a benefit to our downtown. And it's really um, a few bad seeds that give us some problems that are outside of that. that uh, I think we just need to work better with the people that are doing a great job and encourage that because, hey, uh, we need them. We just don't need the problems that are associated with poorly management. Same problem I have with apartment complexes. Apartment complexes. A poorly managed apartment complex is a bane on our existence. A well-managed one is a benefit to our community. All right, well, thank you very much for being part of our podcast. Live and live are available for uh, individual consulting. Our fees start at one beer each. Um, we're available, you can find our card out here, um, and we're happy to help. If you're interested in starting a podcast, it's super easy to do, um, and anyone should be able to do it better than we do. Thank <laughs> you.